You're listening to a recording from the 2017 Mockingbird Conference held at St. George's Episcopal Church in New York City. So if, you, if we haven't met, my name is Ethan Richardson. Uh, I work uh, with Dave Zoll in, in Charlottesville in the Mockingbird HQ. And um, the, the majority of my job is spent doing the magazine, the Mockingbird magazine. So um, I edit that and uh, go back and forth with writers and do interviews. And so, um, but I, I wanted to talk about um, this particular topic because it seems like Almost everything I'm reading these days has to do with um, emotional, like heightened emotional language in, in, our, in our current um, state of affairs. Uh, you hear about <clears throat> college campuses, you know, having safe spaces and that there's trigger warnings, um, that professors are, are losing jobs because... Um, you know they haven't they haven't given the proper trigger warnings and they've offended students. So there's this real like emotional sensitivity to um, to the world that we live in right now. And of course, the election was a huge part of that too. You know, um, the pundits talked about how fact checkers were really irrelevant this time around. That that people voted emotionally rather than um, based on politics. They didn't didn't base on on the facts. They based on how they felt. And you also see this in just everyday conversation where arguments are are sort of posed in these emotional states. You know, people are talking about how certain things make them feel. And there was was an article by uh, a woman named Molly Worthen, who's, she, I think she's at Duke, Oh, at Chapel Hill, that's right. And she, she, her article said, stop saying I feel like. Um, and there's a, there's a little passage I want to read. Can you hit that? It's the next one. This is what is most disturbing about I feel like. The phrase cripples our range of expression and flattens the complex role that emotions do play in our reasoning. It turns emotion into a cudgel that smashes the distinction. And even in our relativistic age, there remains a distinction between evidence out in the world and internal sentiments known only to each of us. And I love that word cudgel. It's such a powerful word. But um, what she's getting at is that this emotion, this this emotion-driven thinking, this emotional thinking... uh, keeps us from actually being able to talk about anything objectively uh, for fear of offense. And everyone is sort of living inside this sort of individualized reality. You know, reality to me is different than reality to you, to any of us. We all live in our own sort of reality, and that makes culture insanely fearful and insanely enraged, uh, fearful because you can never be sure that you've done enough to protect yourself from the witch hunt. You know, you're, you're always worried that you have said something 
that will offend another person whose own sort of individualized reality is different from yours. So fearful, but also enraged because there's this sense that no one is listening or no one cares to the subjective world that I inhabit, the world that, that I know to be real inside. <clears throat> and so what Molly Worthen is getting at in this article um, is that when everything becomes an emotional state, when we say things like, I feel like, like, I feel like it rained yesterday. <laughs> um, somehow, just with a slight like, change in the way that we speak, everything gets tinged with morality. Everything becomes um, a victim-perpetrator um, contest. And there's another article uh, in the New York Times that David Brooks wrote, um, and he's saying that you know even without religion, even though we've we've moved outside of a realm of religious belief, it does not mean by any stretch of the imagination that the morality game uh, hasn't intensified. It's it's gotten worse, and this is what he says: This is a world in which we're still driven by an inextinguishable need to feel morally justified. Our thinking is still vestigially shaped by religious categories. And yet we have no clear framework or set of rituals to guide us in our quest for goodness. This is a lot like what Simeon was just saying. Worse, people have a sense of guilt and sin, but no longer a sense that they live in a loving universe marked by divine mercy, grace, and forgiveness. There is sin, but no formula for redemption. So Brooks is saying, um, similar to Simeon, that there is is a category, um, but religion used to provide this objective moral grounding, this, uh, this moral truth, capital T truth, And today, there's an allergy to that objective, capital T, truth. And there's, which also means that there's an allergy to that capital T truth um, that gives us hope, that gives us something to go on in the morning, uh, that that helps us see beyond uh, what we're currently living in. And so... The question that I want to, if you can go back two slides, Uh, this is from Thornton Wilder, and it's 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 actually um, an unpublished like introduction to Theophilus North, which is a great novel. It's a Mockingbird favorite, Um, but it's it's an apt question for what I want to talk about. What does man do with his despair, his rage, his frustration? Well, there's a wide variety of things that he does with it. And today, when we're all living inside these privatized, subjective bubbles, and we're furious and we're fearful, what do you do? Do you bottle it up? It seems like, for the most part, what we do is we play the victim. And uh, because... As Brooks was saying, there's no declaration of hope. The only way that we can actually see ourselves as good is to play the victim card. 
and to find someone else to blame. That we are wronged and therefore justified. But this is also just a useless and endless cycle because as soon as you are the victim, someone is blaming you for victimizing them. And so it just goes around and around and around and there's no way of getting out of it. So this is the problem that I want to talk about. Um, that Christianity preaches a message that we believe to be objectively true. Capital T. The sin of humankind and the one-way love of God in the cross of Christ. And Christianity says this is true no matter how you feel on Tuesday or Wednesday afternoon. It doesn't have anything to do with your emotional state It is true regardless of that. That's the good news. That it's not conditioned upon you. But how is such a message communicated to someone in an age like this? To someone who's allergic to authority. Allergic to objective truth. Someone who is self-enclosed. Someone who's prone to playing the victim. When your emotions reign supreme, how is an objective message preached? And so I called this talk uh, Jesus in Therapy, but it's, it's kind of a misnomer, but it sounds good. Um, I want to I think about it and talk about it, not in the realm of um, preaching or teaching. I want to think about it in terms of one-to-one relationships. Uh, and so I've, I've called it therapy because I'm thinking about relationships. And so it could be Jesus and pastoral care or Jesus and Christian friendship. That sounds so corny. <laughs> or Jesus and heart-to-heart ministries. Uh, it's even worse. But what I mean is um, that this person... Uh, who, has been, who has been me, uh, may not want anything to do with a church building or uh, a sermon from a pulpit. Um, they may want nothing to do with a top-down proclamation, you know, someone telling them what is true and what isn't true. Um, and maybe the only way of getting through to that person, and this was true for me, was... Mano a mano, you know, person to person. And what I also mean is that God's way of speaking is not always from it, is not always this top down proclamation. It often happens, as, as Luther said, in a very left handed way, in a way that involves no activity whatsoever but a friend. It may not involve speaking or proclaiming at all. So, a couple caveats and then we'll we'll get rolling. But uh, one thing I wanted to make sure you knew I wasn't saying um, was that I'm not equating salvation or the gospel message with sharing feelings. Um, there's There's a lot of hesitation when people hear of like therapeutic and therapeutic can sound like, well, Kind of like Sarah said, you do you, you know, like 
whatever makes you feel good, that's, that's what, whatever is subjectively beneficial for you, that's what you should go after. And that's not the gospel. The gospel is one thing. It's one thing proclaimed for everyone. So that's one caveat. And then the next one is, um, this is not some how-to guide for how to, you know, how to bring like your spiteful sister or roommate or daughter uh, or Facebook frenemy uh, to the gospel message. You know, it, it's, it, it doesn't work that way. You can't coerce it. But I'm thinking descriptively here. This is how, if it does happen, this is how it tends to happen. Um, so let's go ahead and get started. This is, this is the first thing that I sort of notice. And that is um, identification with your own despair. Identification with the question of, um, that, that Paul brought to us the very first thing uh, yesterday. What is the one thing that you can't seem to get around? Or, or what, is it, what is a time where you were completely wrapped up or trapped in something that you just couldn't get away from? The starting point always begins with me understanding my own lostness, my own inner rage or anguish or wounds, you know, uh, my own failure. And everyone knows what it's like to come to someone who is actually alien to that suffering. You know what it's like to walk into a room and to share something uh, and to take the risk of actually putting it out there and to receive sort of stunned silence or someone quickly changing the subject and making it really positive. Um, there's a, a psychiatrist and theologian named Frank Lake who we, we quote a lot on the site and um, he has a lot of good things to say about pastoral care. And he's describing a, a church small group setting and this sort of odd man out experience. Um, the person who's like fearfully but in hope going to share this inner anguish that they felt um, and they, they go for it. But again, they found a room that just changed the subject. Here's what Lake says. The effect of this put down on the anxious sharer is devastating. They feel the group life they have come to depend on and their acceptance in it are tottering on the brink of disintegration. They have shared the worst that they fear to be true of themselves. And the group quite plainly did not want to know. Next week, there's a crisis. Do I go again or do I stay away? If I do go, who is it that goes? The chastened, corrected John or Mary resolved never again to risk being disgraced, resolved to act the cheerful, charismatic cover-up to the evident satisfaction of all. But that is not the essence of renewal, but of the old religion. However skillfully last week's well-shamed sharer contrives, there will be anger hidden. 
So the result only alienates the person more. <clears throat> Either one, they decide, I guess this wasn't for me, and they don't return. Or two, um, it's just one more place in a world of places where we fake and we appease. We, we put on a mask and we, we fail to be honest about what, what's really going on. <clears throat> but on the flip side, everyone craves. The reason that we, we, we take the chance anyways is because we crave to have that despair normalized. And everyone knows that feeling too when you've actually taken the risk and put yourself out there and you get a nod. And that's all it takes. You get someone who's like, I totally know what that feels like. Absolutely. Everyone craves to have what they're going through normalized. So there's a, there's a story um, it's one of George Eliot's first stories uh, called Janet's Repentance. And uh, it's, it's this classic story of this new minister that comes into town. His name is Mr. Tryon, and uh, he's a law gospel preacher. And there's, there's a new faction in town that is, is going to listen to his talks, but then there's a huge faction that's that's sort of the old guard, you know. They, they like to keep things as, um, as it always was, which was always sort of a moralistic sermon, but, you know, not incredibly offensive. They don't like this Mr. Tryon. And the lead guy who is sort of like the anti-Tryonite, his name is Mr. Dempster, and uh, his wife is Janet. And Janet Dempster, though she's a part of the old guard, uh, her husband is incredibly abusive, and it reaches sort of a boiling point, as these things do, and she has nowhere to turn. And the very person that she sort of swore was an enemy uh, suddenly becomes the only place she could possibly turn. Literally everyone else in town is some, some place that she couldn't turn. And she remembers a moment where she walked into a room where Mr. Tryon was speaking to a woman who was dying. And she remembers him saying something that was really gentle, almost showing that he suffered too, that he was someone who was close to death himself. In that moment, she just quickly forgot. But in this moment of her acute suffering, it immediately comes back to mind and she thinks, maybe he is the person I can talk to. So I'm going to read this passage. Um, this, is her, this is her sort of revelation. No, she suddenly thought. And the thought was like an electric shock. There was one spot in her memory that seemed to promise her an untried spring where the waters might be sweet. That short interview with Mr. Tryon had come back upon her. His voice, his words, his look, which told her that he knew sorrow. His words have implied that he thought his death was near. She had often heard Mr. Tryon laughed at for being fond of great sinners. She began to see a new meaning in those words. He would perhaps understand her helplessness, her wants. If she could pour out her heart to him, if she could for the first time in her life unlock all the chambers of her soul. And this is really great. 
The impulse to confession almost always requires the presence of a fresh ear and a fresh heart. And in our moments of spiritual need, the man to whom we have no tie but our common nature seems nearer to us than mother, brother, or friend. Our daily familiar life is but a hiding of ourselves from each other behind a screen of trivial words and deeds. And those who sit with us at the same hearth are often the farthest off from the deep human soul within us, full of unspoken evil and unacted goods. Good. So hope enters the equation without even the mention of gospel, but just at the thought of a fellow sufferer, someone who might know about what she is dealing with someone who might be able to help her plunge the depths a little better. And I just love that line, no tie but our common nature. You know, it, it's, it's so true, at least in my family, that um, I, I tend not to know about the ones closest to me in, in, my, in my nuclear family that I come from. Um, but I will tell some of the, the deepest secrets to those I've just met. Um, at our church, uh, Mary Lou Thomas gave a sermon um, on Good Friday, and, and she talked about this, um, this quote from Garrison Keillor about Good Friday friends, and that we have Easter friends, but we also have Good Friday friends. And these Good Friday friends are exactly these type of people, that you can actually unload all that you have been afraid to unload, and they won't turn their face away. Okay, so one more um, glimpse of this identification with one's own despair. Uh, has anybody seen the, the series The Crown on Netflix? That's kind of, yeah, duh. Um, so this is a, this is a clip um, uh, with uh, Winston Churchill. He's, he's nearing the end of his life. He's, he's, he's gotten uh, pretty old. And um, I can't remember if it's the queen or, or um, the government itself is, is having a painting commissioned, which is this huge honor. It's going to hang in this very prominent place. And uh, they bring in this famed uh, modernist artist. And so the artist comes uh, over the span of you know, several months, um, once a week, and it becomes almost like a therapy session for Churchill. Um, but this is the artist in the Churchill on their last uh, seating. So let me, there's a second clip that I'm going to show. So I'll, I'll just go ahead and give you the rundown of this one. And if we have a chance to watch it, great. But the, uh, so, so Churchill's having this honorary painting done. Um, Churchill himself is a painter. And, uh, and as he's gotten older, he's become sort of angry and defensive. And as you, if you've seen the show, you know that he sort of is getting in trouble uh, a lot. And the queen has to sort of like rein him in a bit because he's just, you know, he's, he's been irresponsible with certain like crises that have, that have happened. Um, and he's increasingly blind to the faults. Uh, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't actually see what he should see. And so the, the painter, uh, in, in sort of a, a move of grace, uh, tells Churchill, I, I really like your paintings. And, um, and 
Churchill's a little bit flattered, and, and he says, you know, like, well, which ones do you like? And, uh, you know, he's done these really valiant ones. And, and the painter says, uh, I like the ones that you've done just of the pond outside. And, um, and he's done several of them. And he's like, you know, you go back to that pond over and over again, and each one is different. And he's like, but it's just a pond. And, and so, but he says, yes, but there's something beneath the surface of that pond. Like, the reason you keep going back to it is because there's something there. And um, he kind of thinks that's like hogwash. And so they keep talking. And Churchill then asks, um, you know, I've been looking at your paintings recently. And there's one that just has struck me. You know, it's one where these trees are just so black and gaudy and, and monstrous. And it's, it's deeply unsettling. And the painter says, yes, it, it is unsettling. And I, I was going through a terrible time. Um, uh, and then he talks about a loss. Uh, I, I think his, his daughter died. And... Uh, I think that's what happened. Um, yeah, yeah. So this is why you need the clip, you know. <laughs> Anyways, so the the painter expresses this deep loss, and it sort of unlocks something in Churchill that 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 says like, "Wow, that's happened to me too." Um, my my daughter died, and. Um, and, and that's what brought us to this house. We moved to this house to get away from the memory of, of losing Marigold, our, our daughter. And, um, and that's also the same time that I put that pond in. And it sort of comes to him that, oh my gosh, I have been painting this pond because I can't stop thinking about Marigold. I can't stop thinking about this daughter that I lost and this life that I have no control over. But it's such a beautiful moment because, like, the artist did not bring Marigold up. The artist simply observed and listened. And he identified his own despair, his own suffering, with something that he knew might be under the surface with Churchill. Which leads me to the second. The power of listening. Which is... um, almost the definition of left-handed power, the definition of um, passive power. Uh, Henry Nouwen said that listening is the highest form of hospitality. And what does that mean? What does hospitality mean? It's, it's, not to, it's not to be welcomed into a home so that you can feel like the others in the home. It's being invited into a home so that you can be completely, totally yourself. You're given the room and the space to actually be who you are. And being listened to has the power to show us ourselves in ways that we weren't otherwise able to see. Somehow, just having someone across the room from you and listening to you somehow open something up in you that you didn't know was there before. You suddenly come to yourself. Um, there's a French writer, and his name is uh, Emmanuel Carrère. And 
he just wrote this new book called The Kingdom, and, and it's, he's got this really strange writing style where he's, it's, it's both a fictional piece, but also an autobiography. And it's a story of his coming to faith, losing his faith, and, um, and still wrestling with it today. And this is early on, and he's talking about how he first came to faith. And it was because of his godmother, Jacqueline. And Jacqueline, uh, her home was sort of his second home. He always went there when he got in trouble or just to waste time. And uh, Jacqueline was also a devout Christian. And he always thought that was kind of bizarre, just a weird quirk about Jacqueline. Um, But it never really occurred to him that it was something that needed much attention. But her hospitality, the fact that he could come and just offload whatever was going on, then brought on this moment. And I'll read it. I think that as an adolescent and young man, I was terrifically unhappy. But I didn't want to know it, and consequently, I didn't. My defense system, based on the irony and the pride of being a writer, worked rather well. It was only once I turned 30 that this system jammed up on me. I could no longer write. I didn't know how to love. I knew I wasn't particularly likable. Just being me became literally unbearable. When I went to see Jacqueline in this state of acute distress, she wasn't particularly surprised. She saw it as progress. Finally, I think she even said. Stripped of the ideas that had allowed me to keep up a pretense, naked, skinned, I became accessible to my Lord. Just a while beforehand, I would have fought tooth and nail. I would have said, I don't give a shit about my Lord. That I had no interest in consolations for the weak and defeated. Now I was suffering so much, every additional second I spent being me was such torture that I was ready to hear the words the gospel addresses to all those whose burden is so great they can't go on. How amazing is that? So, I mean, this is the prodigal son story, you know? It's, It's the... This is in the Bible, you know, the the father who waits expectantly and and provides the the home that he can always come back to. And that's what listening is like. You know, you're this long-suffering carer, this long-suffering friend. And what does the prodigal son do? He comes to himself in a moment. He comes to himself and says, gosh, like, I could be home right now. Which means that listening to a friend, like Christ, is sort of like absorbing someone else's rage, you know, absorbing someone else's frustration and despair, and giving it the space to sort of exhaust itself, to run its course, uh, until all that's left is whatever, whatever engine is running it. And finally, they're able to see it. You know, they have been bottling up this rage for so long, but, but now they've had the chance to express it, and all that's left is whatever wound was generating it. And this, just all by itself, has power. Okay, so um, 
There's another, there's an there's a Invisibilia clip that I wanted to play, which I guess I won't play. Um, oh, they are? Okay, great. Time out. Should I go back there? Okay. Okay. I'll set it up. So Invisibilia is a podcast on NPR. Has anybody listened to it? Okay, great. Uh, so it's, it's sort of a social science podcast, and, and one of them was on this phenomenon called, and we wrote about it on the blog, but non-complementary behavior, which is basically kind of like what Simeon was saying, like a scientific re-rendering of what we call grace. Uh, non-complementary behavior is um, showing someone in opposite regard to what they have dealt you. So if someone feeds you anger, uh, you feed them love. And it's, it's, a, it's a strange thing when that happens to you, and this is what this episode is about, that when non-complementary behavior is shown, its effect is incredibly powerful. This story starts in Washington, D.C. on a warm summer night. There were eight friends gathered around a backyard dinner table. They were toasting family and friendship, and everybody was having a good time. Kind of one of those great evenings. Lots of awesome food and French wine, and it was, it was like a magical night. That's Michael Rabdo. He was there with his wife and his 14-year-old daughter, Kyber. And he says it was getting late, maybe around 10 p.m., when it happened. I was standing beside my wife, and I just saw this arm with a long-barreled gun come between us. It was as if in slow motion, this hand, and then it just got really quiet. The hand belonged to a man, medium height, in clean, high-end sweats. He raised the gun and held it first to the head of Michael's friend, Christina, and then to the head of Michael's wife. Then he said, Give me your money. That's Kyber, Michael's daughter. Kept repeating, give me your money. Or I'm going to start effing shooting. And um, we believed him. But there was a problem. No one had any money. So they started talking, grasping for some way to dissuade the man. They started with guilt. What would your mother... What would your mother think of you? And he said something like, I don't have an effing mother. Michael remembers thinking... This is headed towards a very bad end. Someone was going to get hurt. But then one of the women at the table, this woman, Christina, pipes up. She has an offer for the man. Said, you know, we're here celebrating. Why don't you have a glass of wine? It was like a switch. He could feel the difference. All of a sudden, Michael says, the look on the man's face changed. And... He tasted the wine and just said, damn, that's, that's a really good glass of wine. <laughs> we had some cheese there, too. And so he, he reached down for the cheese, and then um, he put the gun in his pocket. The man drank his wine, ate his cheese, and then he said something that no one expected. I think I've come to the wrong place. And we were all like, Hey, I understand. For a moment, they all sat there together. The stars overhead twinkling, 
the sound of chirping insects in the night air. And then he said something just so strange. He just said, can I get a hug? My wife hugged him, and, and our friend hugged him. Then he said, can we have a group hug? And so everyone got up and formed a circle around the man. I can't tell you how strange that was, but we all did come around him and hug him. And um, he said he was sorry, and he walked out with a glass of wine out the gate. Later that evening, after everything had calmed down, they would find the glass neatly placed on the sidewalk by their alley. Not thrown, not carelessly discarded, placed. But that was later. At the time, all they could think to do was run into the house and cry in gratitude. It was like, this was like a miracle. It was like a miracle. But was it a miracle? Or is there a better word for what happened that night? Before we start, do you have any questions for me? No, no questions. This is a professor at Michigan State University named Chris Hopwood. Chris spends his life looking at how people interact with each other. And one of the things that he looks at is called non-complementary behavior. So the basic idea is that people naturally mirror each other. So when someone is hostile to you, you are typically hostile back. Warmth begets warmth. And breaking this pattern, say, being really warm to somebody after they've been incredibly hostile to you, that is non-complementary behavior. And according to Hopwood, it's incredibly hard to do. So if I um, am really nice to you and you're really cold and unfriendly to me, generally speaking, either I'll try to do something to like appease you and make you like me so that you'll warm up, or maybe I'll respond with coldness to you because you're being unfriendly to me, or we'll just stop interacting. But people do manage to sometimes behave in non-complimentary ways. And when they do, it often completely shakes up a situation, flips the script. It happens between people, but also it can happen on a bigger level. The reason, for example, that we admire people like Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. is because they were able to maintain a, a sort of warmth and integrity in the face of people who were being cruel to them. The march in Selma, nonviolence in India, offering a man with a gun at your head a glass of wine, those aren't miracles. They're examples of non-complementary behavior. Okay. <laughs> It's like exactly what Simeon was talking about. Like, let's medicalize this, you know? It is a miracle, okay? Like, that is a miracle no matter how you slice it. Call it non-complementary behavior if you want, but that is a miracle. And whenever it happens, it is, that, that someone shows you, um, grants you uh, a disposition that you don't deserve, you know? Like, if... if if you come at someone guns blazing, and I mean that metaphorically, like if you come at someone with nothing but anger or rage or frustration, uh, and they show you hospitality, they, they give you a glass of wine at the table, like can you think of, and I'm asking you personally, can you think of a moment that that's happened to you? And, and it does something to you, you know? And um, you listen to the, the end, and it's just classic NPR, like, explaining, you know. But, 
And, and maybe, you, maybe you think like, gosh, this isn't Christianity. This is like, this is psychology or talk therapy, you know. Uh, if, if we're just nice to people, like, they'll get better. But that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that if, if your soul is fragile, you know, if you're a fragile person, uh, this is a way to begin to see yourself and to actually take a look at the despair or the angst, uh, whatever you want to call it. And we believe as Christians that the beginning of faith is, is, um, is repentance. And, and repentance is truly seeing yourself. Um, and not, not until you truly see yourself are you able to see um, what, what grace might even mean. Uh, and so I, I think this is, this is just a really beautiful image from Frank Lake. Uh, I want to read this because it's just so beautiful. Um, this, is, this, is actually, this is actually what Christ does. Uh, this is about a man who uh, Frank Lake's, um, one of his friends, was a, was a prison chaplain. And he, from time to time, would allow... Um, folks who had just been released to come and live with him. And this, this man that he's talking about came and lived with his friend and was actually called back into jail um, because he had some um, like previous um, crimes that, that needed to be rectified. So um, he asked before he went back to jail if he could take a cross with him uh, to just keep with him uh, for solace or protection or whatever. And, um, and then this is what happens. Um, sorry, I, I need to say one more thing. And that is that um, they got a letter about a month later and the man had written saying, can I get another cross? And they're kind of, it was, it was sort of not explained, but of course they sent another one. And when he got out, they asked him, what was the second cross about? He explained in a matter-of-fact sort of way that he had felt cruelly provoked by a prison officer who seemed to, quote, have it in for him. On the occasion of one particularly flagrant taunt, he had found his right fist coming up to punch the man in the face and knock him out of action. By a miracle of inner prompting, he had managed instead to force that hand into the pocket where his fingers opened just enough to grasp the crucifix. All the fury of his violent anger went into that hand. He crushed the crucifix to smithereens. The twisted fragments bore witness to the strength of his retaliatory rage. His violent anger, which had, just, which had been justified enough in it, in its own way, and almost certainly just also in its origins, had spent itself on the cross of Christ. Accept the Lord's request to make him, not anyone else, the victim. As Robert Layton, Archbishop of Glasgow in the 17th century, wrote to a very depressed woman, I bid you vent your rage into the bosom of God. Christ was crucified in order that now our anger can spend itself. Obediently and in faith, hurting the one provided, the Lamb of God. So, um, I'll leave that at that. Um, what it leads me to think, though, is that finally, um, 
if it does happen, and it's not promised to happen, um, I think I think what is true also is that non-complementary behavior is not promised to provoke a response of faith. You know, if um, if we're given grace, as anyone in this room who is a parent knows, or a husband or wife, if you show grace, it's not bound to get the response that you're looking for. That's not grace otherwise. Um, But if it does happen, this is how it's happened. And just as listening or being listened to may for the first time help me see what's behind the rage, so too does the need for hope intensify. And so we suddenly begin looking for an answer to this deep predicament that we've suddenly become aware of. And what I would say is the third point is that even still, the proclamation for someone who is this fragile soul needs it to be told in a, in a clever way. And this is kind of what Mockingbird's all about. It needs to be told... As, as we say a lot, with new persuasive words. Um, it, it needs to be told slant, as Emily Dickinson says. Um, now we get to watch a crown clip. Um, so this is the second clip, and it kind of helps um, illustrate what I'm talking about here. But Churchill has just seen the painting throughout the entire process. You want to play the first one? Okay, let's go back and watch the first one. In silence, preferably. Yes, yes. I'll be a good boy. I quite understand the need for concentration. Painting a picture is like uh, fighting a battle, a bloody battle. In the gladiatorial fight to the death, the artist either wins or loses. Are you winning? I hope so. You think I'll like it? I think that's possibly too much to ask for. But I do take comfort from the fact that your own work is so honest and revealing. Oh. Thank you for the compliment. Well, are there any works that you're... Referring to in particular? I was thinking especially of the goldfish pond here at Chartmer. The pond? Why the pond? It's just a pond. It's very much more than that, as borne out by the fact that you've returned to it again and again, more than 20 times. Well, yes, because it's such a technical challenge. It eludes me. Well, perhaps you elude yourself, sir. That's why it's more revealing than a self-portrait. Oh, that's nonsense. It's the water, the, the play of light, the, the, the trickery, and the fish down below. I think all our work is unintentionally revealing, and I found it especially so with your pond. Beneath the tranquility and the elegance and the light playing on the surface, I saw honesty and pain, terrible pain. The framing itself indicated to me that you wanted us to see something beneath all the muted colors deep down in the water. Terrible despair, hiding like a leviathan, like a sea monster. 
You saw all that? Yes, I did. Perhaps that says more about you than me. Mm -hmm. Perhaps. May I ask you a question, Mr. Sutherland? Hmm. It's about one of your paintings. The one you call pastoral. With all that gnarled and twisted wood. Those great ugly dabs of black. I found something malevolent in it. Where did that come from? Well, it's very perceptive. That was, uh, was a very dark time. My, uh, my son, John, passed away, aged two months. Oh, my. I am sorry. Yes, thank you. You have five, yes? Four. Marigold was the fifth. She left us at age... Two years, nine months, septicemia. I'm so sorry, I had no idea. We settled on the name Marigold on account of her, her wonderful golden curls. The most extraordinary color. Regretfully, though perhaps mercifully, I, I, I was not present when she died. When I came home, Clemmy roared like a wounded animal. We bought Chartwell a year after Marigold died. That was when I put in the pond. Okay, it's so good. Uh, <clears throat> that brooding music, too, at the end. But, but as he, uh, you don't see this, but right as he's turning away, the painter says, no, face me, because this is, this is the time to paint. Like, this is really, this is really you, Winston. And uh, thanks for asking me to show this one, because it actually makes the, uh, the next one I want to show more important. Um, the painting itself, and this is what I mean about telling it slant, the, the painting itself becomes this external aid. It becomes a way to speak the truth. And you can still have the relationship, you know, like Winston and the painter have developed this friendship and this rapport, but the truth is something that they can both look at outside of themselves. And um, so I'm going to show this clip, and you can see, like, this is no longer listening. He now has the right to proclaim something to him. Um, and it doesn't mean he exactly likes it, but nonetheless, he, he proclaims it. 
Wait, pause it. Sorry. I keep doing this. So he, the, the painting was shown. It was presented, you know, and in all its formality. And Winston uh, got up. I think it's like his 80th birthday. And so he gives a speech. And the first thing he does is he makes fun of this painting. And he makes fun of it because it, he doesn't like how it has portrayed him. And, um, and so you're, you're going to hear why he doesn't like it. Um, but I thought I should explain that to you. Okay, you can play it now. Why are you here? I understand you've rejected the painting. I have. On what grounds? That is not a painting. It's a humiliation. How shall I paint him today? Ah, sitting on a chair, producing a stool. A broken, sagging, pitiful creature, squeezing and squeezing. That's not how it's being seen. That is how it is, and I will not accept it. I don't think it's wise to reject it. It was commissioned by the members of the Joint Houses of Parliament as a sign of respect. Well, then they should have commissioned an artist who is respectful instead of a Judas wielding his murderous brush. Look at it! It is a betrayal of friendship and an unpatriotic, treacherous, cowardly assault by the individualistic left. As regards the friendship... Clearly, there is none. I accepted this commission because I admired you, and I came through the experience admiring you even more. You make monsters of everyone you admire? It's not vindictive. It's art. It's not personal. You are a lost soul. A narcissist without direction or certainty. Please, sir. Don't overreact. Give it time. I showed the sketches to your wife throughout the process. She remarked on how accurate they were. But that is the whole point. It is not a reasonably truthful image of me. It is, sir. It is not. It is cruel. Age is cruel. If you see decay, it's because there's decay. If you see frailty, it's because there's frailty. I can't be blamed for what is. And I refuse to hide and disguise what I see. If you're engaged in a fight with something, then it's not with me. It's with your own blindness. I think you should go. said that before. 
this time. I mean it. I'm tired. We've had enough. I have, my love. This time I really have. Good. Really, it's really great that that last moment. I mean, his his wife gets to be sort of um, administer grace, um, and the painter's done his job of delivering the truth. Um, but he doesn't get to reap the benefit. He doesn't see Winston uh, respond with "You're right," you know, "Well done," you did an honest work, you know, um, and so. Uh, Anyways, I think that what's so powerful um, in, in preaching, as well as um, some of the best work that we do at Mockingbird, as well as um, in these moments of pastoral care, is, is when we can illustrate something, um, point to something, uh, use new words to um, speak to the person that is, sits across the room from us, um, that, that can reach them. Of course, this is the Holy Spirit's work. It's not our work. Um, you know, it's, it's the way that, um, I think it's Nathan, tells, tells David a story. And, and the, the way that he, the, the story sinks in at the end is, this story is about you. You are the man. And... It's the same way that Jesus tells stories. He tells stories so that we, um, we pick a side and then the side gets flipped or we see ourselves on the wrong side. And I think this idea of, of using an external aid or of using new words uh, is as true for the proclamation of the problem as it is for the solution, the good news. Um, the good news which speaks and addresses him or her that is suffering, that is in this place. And, um, and sometimes, by the gift of the Holy Spirit, this, this powerful work of persuasion, um, of, of allowing someone to see um, what is true for them, is given to us by our own story. It's, it's not a story that we have to make up or that, that we paint. It's a story that is written in us. It's a story that, that we know by heart because we've lived it. And that is the beauty of pastoral care, to, to actually be able to minister to someone by something that's been given to you. Um, and so I want to close with this. The, the end of this George Eliot story is so amazing. Um, so she calls this minister Tryon, and, and she knows um, maybe if he knows a little more about suffering, he can, he can be some help to me now. And the truth is he can, and he, he knows. He knows exactly what she's going through. He's been there himself, and he knows what got him through it. And the amazing thing in the way that he tells how he got through it is he doesn't say directly... Um, Janet, Jesus loves you, and he died for you, and your sins are forgiven, and there is hope. But he says, I was in your position, 
And someone came to me and told me, there is hope. Jesus died for my sins. It doesn't come from the minister himself. It comes from what he heard from someone else. It's a gift he was given too. And he can just retell it. So here we go. Um, This is Tryon speaking to Janet. Do not believe that God has left you to yourself. How can you tell but that the hardest trials you have known have been only the road by which he was leading you to that complete sense of your own sin and helplessness, without which you would never have renounced all other hopes and trusted in his love alone. I know, dear Mrs. Dempster, I know it is hard to bear. I would not speak lightly of your sorrows. I feel that the mystery of our life is great, and at one time it seemed as dark to me as it does to you. Mr. Tryon hesitated again. He saw that the first thing that Janet needed was to be assured of sympathy. She must be made to feel that her anguish was not strange to him that he entered into the only half-expressed secrets of her spiritual weakness before any other message of consolation could find its way to her heart. The tale of divine pity was never yet believed from lips that were not felt to be moved by human pity. And Janet's anguish was not strange to Mr. Tryon. He had never been in the presence of a sorrow and self-despair that had sent so strong a thrill through all the recesses of his saddest experience. And it is because sympathy is but a living again through our own past in a new form that confession often prompts a response of confession. Mr. Tryon felt this prompting, and his judgment, too, told him that in obeying it, He would be taking the best means of administering comfort to Janet. Yet he hesitated. As we tremble to let in the daylight on a chamber of relics, which we have never visited except in curtain silence. It's hard work. It's hard to do. But it's it's also what we know. It's what we've lived. And it's also also the beautiful power of the cross uh, that, that our suffering These moments of intense anguish are shared by our Lord. And and it's it's a gift that we we have individual to us. And it's a power that can speak to others. And with that, I will close. Um, I know that we're going to have lunch now. And Dave told me that um, they'll be setting up in here. So if you could give space for those who... Um, are coming in to lay the, lay the stuff out. Um, thank you so much for, for listening.